Welcome once again, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, the god emperor of Dune, the greatest living American writer, Neil Pollock. And here we are. We have a great show for you this week. We have reviews of the new Wes Anderson movie, The French Dispatch, and the new Edgar Wright movie, Last Night in Soho. These are movies, I wouldn't call these guys indie filmmakers, but they're, you know, quirky mainstream filmmakers. And they both have new movies out in theaters this week. So this is uh, something to celebrate coming out of a pandemic. But first, we're going to start with a discussion about the new Jonathan Franzen novel, which is called Crossroads. And as such, I'm featuring the Robert Johnson version of Crossroads, not the Cream version, the original blues version, the original blues song, the original rock and roll song, really. It's Robert Johnson. He's cooler than you. He did a deal with the devil. You don't have to do a deal with the devil to listen to this show. You just have to listen and enjoy. We'll be right back. Jonathan Franzen has a new novel out called Crossroads. And when Jonathan Franzen has a new novel out, the Jonathan Franzen discourse explodes on the internet and the discourse usually goes like this jonathan franzen is not a very likable person and he's annoying and the these profiles i'm reading of him make him sound completely snotty and elitist but his books are good god damn it his books are always good they're always interesting he's such a talented novelist that the discourse almost doesn't matter and we've written about crossroads this week well more specifically ted mcclelland has written his first piece for book and film globe ted is with me now hello Hello. So Ted and I used to work together at the Chicago Reader back in the 1990s, before the dawn of time. We were uh, (laughs) urban reporters, New Yorker style reporters in Chicago. And Ted is now the author of Running for Home, a novel, and Midnight in Vehicle City, Flint, General Motors, and the Strike that Created the Middle Class. Now, we picked Ted to write this uh, review because, you know, Ted, you're you're a Midwesterner, born, born and bred, right? That's right. I'm from Lansing, Michigan and uh, lived in Chicago for many years. I'm, I'm a Midwesterner. I'm middle-aged. I'm Protestant. So I totally fit the demographic of this book. Yeah. So Crossroads, you know, Jonathan Franzen sets his novels in the Midwest. Uh, the Corrections was a St. Louis book. Freedom was a Minneapolis book. And as you point out uh, in your review, Crossroads is set in the Chicago suburbs. So t- tell us a little bit about the book. It's about uh, this 47-year-old I guess, an associate minister named Russ Hildebrandt, and he's at uh, a church in the western suburbs of Chicago, which is where Jonathan Franzen himself was born. He was born in Western Springs. And obviously, you know, I guess it's, this is a cliche. It's a, middle, a middle-aged white guy having a midlife crisis. Crossroads is the name of a youth group. It's sort of this Jesus Christ superstar era, era youth group. And, you know, he's, he's been pushed out as the leader of the group by this so young hip mustachio guy named Russ Ambrose. And they, they have a huge falling out. They have a huge fight They're They're not on speaking terms. And as the book begins, he, he's taking these you know women on trips to Englewood on the South side of Chicago to deliver clothing and toys to a church. And one of the women is this 37 year old uh, widow who just lost her test pilot husband to a jet crash. And, uh, he develops an infatuation with her. And that that's sort of the central plot of the novel. What, what's going to happen between the minister uh, and the widow? I mean, it, it's a book that takes religion, you know, very seriously. It certainly doesn't look at it in, in any kind of Elmer Gantry way. 
you know, as I said in the review, Franzen tends to uh, observe his characters rather than sympathize with them. But I think he's more sympathetic to the characters in this book than he was at least to the characters in the corrections. I think he appreciates the fact that uh, religion attracts people who are most in need of grace. Now, this is set in the 1970s. So the youth group is kind of one of the it's one of these sort of it's got a like a, a vague element of, of counterculture. It's a sort of trickle down into the Chicago suburbs. One of these youth ministers who like plays James Taylor songs on the guitar or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he actually plays guitar, but he's always, you know, it's like an encounter group. You know, they're supposed to be saying things that bother them about each other, things they like about each other or, you know, pair off and discuss their feelings with each other. And I found it interesting, too, as you, as you pointed out in the review, this is not, a, like you said, this is not a book that is satirizing the hypocrisies of religion. These are like liberal Christians. Exactly. And, and that's and that's actually, you know, I was just thinking about that today. You know, evangelical Christians, uh, they get all the headlines. The main Mainline Protestants, uh, you know, they're, they're a little quieter. But yeah, I mean, Russ, he was, uh, you know, he lived in Greenwich Village uh, for six, I don't know, two months or six months after, you know, his seminary. He, he went to Birmingham to march with Martin Luther King. He organizes an annual trip to an Indian reservation. These are do-gooders. These are people who believe in the, the social gospel. It's just so interesting because, because you know, I, I mean, I'm not from the Midwest. I grew up in Arizona, but my um, familiarity with religion was largely with like liberal people who were religious, liberal Jews and liberal Christians who were, you know, who, who cared about uh, social injustice and racism. Uh, they weren't necessarily Bible thumpers, even liberal Mormons. I even knew, you know, people like that. I feel like this book kind of gives that culture its due in a way. Absolutely. I mean, it's called First Reformed Church. So definitely it's, you know, the Reformed tradition and Protestantism. And there's probably not that much distance between, you know, Reformed Protestantism and Reformed Judaism, as you say. You know, they both tend to lead you to liberal political opinions. And I I don't think there's been enough attention paid to what you might call the the religious left or the, you know, the, the religious Middle. I mean, nobody ever really talked about you know, Hillary Clinton's religion, but you know, she was definitely someone who came out of that. She was in a Christian youth group in a church in the Chicago suburbs in, in the 1960s. And they did exactly this sort of thing. You know, their youth pastor took them downtown to see Martin Luther King speak. Right. So in addition to the religious aspect, this is also, you know, Jonathan Francis. So this is a family saga, right? There are, right. There are children and the, the the main character, Russ, has has several children with, with his wife. And the kids are also characters in, in the book. And this is the first in a trilogy, a proposed trilogy, for God's sake. Right. Yeah. I mean, he calls it the, the key to all mythologies, which was the, the book that was being written by that dried up old pedant in, in Middlemarch. And so, you know, I, I think Franz and uh, didn't he write an essay in the 90s about, you know, how literature was no longer ambitious enough? You know, I, I think he sees himself as this, you know, 19th century type novelist delivering these huge books. And that's fine. And, you know, I mean, that's incredibly pretentious that he's going to name uh, a trilogy of book of books uh, after something. Uh, Edward Kasabin, I believe, is the name. Yeah, of the character. That's the guy. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I know the references to Jonathan Franzen, but, you know, it's like, I mean, that's just almost charmingly old fashioned in, in right. its pretension. Like, who who gives a crap these days about Middlemarch? I mean, I, not like I don't think Middlemarch is a great book because it is, but it's like, right. you know, this guy, you know, still is still trying to, like, be a great writer. It's so odd. Right. Well, and as you talk about, you know, it's just charmingly old fashioned that he would make a minister, the main character. I mean, that's the kind of thing that Anthony Trollope did all the time, isn't it? 
Yeah, Trollhopper. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, they're, you know, they're ministers and Dickens and Austin, right. you know, that, that the sort of golden, what we consider the golden age of the novel. And so Franzen is, is like this throwback writer. And boy, doesn't he let us know it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, he does. Uh, he does, he doesn't care if you think he's old fashioned. So we were talking about the kids. You know, he's got three kids. He's got Perry, who's this sort of too clever by half for himself pothead. You know, he's dealing drugs to the the son of the woman that uh, he has this big crush on. And you know, the kids kind of join Crossroads as a way of uh, adolescent rebellion against their father because they know he's going to hate it because he hates he hates Rick Ambrose. He hates the the new leader of Crossroads. And, you know, Perry joins it and he kind of sees it as this intellectual uh, game as being able to penetrate the, you know, the, the social structure of Crossroads. And another thing that's interesting to me, and I have to admit, I'm fascinated with suburbia because I, I did not grow up in a suburb. I grew up in a kind of a Midwestern in factory city. Yeah. And I, I got all my impressions of suburbia from 80s movies about the Chicago suburbs. And it just didn't seem credible to me that people were as obsessed with status as they were in, in Risky Business and John Hughes movies. But here in this book, they are. And I have to believe it because it's, it seems like an inside job. Um, yeah, I, mean, I grew up in the suburbs. And so I can tell you that it is true. All right. I can, can, I can, confer, I can confirm this. OK. But uh, and, and I think another thing I mentioned was that this was like the second literary blockbuster to come out of the Chicago suburbs in five years. There was a book called The Knicks by Nathan Hill which, yeah. you know, struck me as very Franzen-esque. And of course, this book is even more Franzen-esque because it's by Franzen himself. Yeah, the, the Nick, the Knicks was a, like, there, there was like a 1960s epic as well, right? There wasn't that. Yeah. Same, going back to the same time period. Yeah, I read that book. I don't I don't recall uh, being completely enraptured by the Knicks. And, you know, I have a hard time with friends and, you know, I'm a novelist. And so I'm just like, oh, my God, you know, it's like it's the anxiety of influence. But this does you know, this sounds like a compelling read, I've got to say. And the reviews have been pretty much uniformly great for this piece. Oh, yeah. I mean, like I said, you can't stop reading it. And when I, when I finally had to stop because I got to the last page, it was like there seems to be this gap in my life. Where Where is this book now? Fortunately, Ted, there are two more to come. Two more to come, but I'm going to have to wait. I'm going to have to wait a few years. I mean, I felt the same way about the Knicks. This may be the book that caught me up more than any book since the Knicks, honestly. You're the only Knicks fan in Chicago. Well, Ted, um, stay alive until the next Franzen book comes out. Hopefully we'll still be here and you could write write about that for us, too. Okay, thanks a lot, Neil. All right, Ted, thank you. Ted McClellan wrote a review of Crossroads, the new novel by Jonathan Franzen. It is up now on Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Time once again for our mostly weekly segment, which is still called Let's Talk About Movies with Stephen. It's almost turning into the name of the segment at this point. I, 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 we got to come up with something better. Stephen Garrett is back to talk about movies with me. And this week, Stephen has reviewed the new Edgar Wright movie, One Night in Soho. Stephen, hello. Hello. So Edgar Wright has returned with another overheated or just maybe just heated genre picture. He he did direct a documentary about the Sparks Brothers that came out this year, but his last feature film was Baby Driver. Uh, last Night in Soho is uh, is a departure from that. Most of his movies are a departure from the previous movie. Yeah, I mean, to his credit, I think Baby Driver was like the biggest hit of his career and made like over $200 million worldwide, which is ridiculous to think that Edgar Wright, the guy who made Shaun of the Dead, has gotten to that point in his career. And 
tad a lot of pressure to do another baby like Baby Driver 2. And he said, no, I'm, I want to do a, I'm going to switch up the genres again and, and do another. In this case, it was psychological horror, which is uh, with the 60s kind of uh, twist. And I was very excited to see this. I mean, it, it's just a, it's a great kind of sandbox to plan. And he's so incredibly talented when it comes to directing things in a stylish way. I, I, I don't know how you feel, but I really get a kick out of watching the way that he directs scenes and the energy and excitement uh, that he brings to it. But his stories not so much. I'm mixed. Yeah, I'm a mix on Edgar Wright as well. Like, I am not a Baby Driver fan. You know, Lily James's Southern accent you know, just drove me up a wall <laughs> in that movie. I, I couldn't stand it. You know, you know, I love Shaun of the Dead, and I also have a soft spot for World's End, which is sort of his uh, sci-fi horror comedy movie that he made. It's probably the, one of his least popular movies, but I, right. I, I really enjoyed that. So, but you know, this this does have an, an appealing. Um, I hate to use the word milieu, but it does. You know, it's like set in swing in London. You know, the, yeah. the world of Austin Powers and uh, but 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 with less of an ironic twist. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think uh, and he's spoken about this in interviews that he was really taken at a young age at how stylish and mod and sexy, you know, swinging London was and the reputation that it had this hedonistic kind of loose attitude about life. And I think he's feeling like this is a corrective to that by showing, no, 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 it was seedy and uh, it ruined a lot of lives and men were predatory and women were preyed upon. And I, I think he sees this as a sort of corrective and also an opportunity for him to turn that world into a horror film, you know, kind of looking at it from another point of view so that it's not fun and sexy. And it's actually revealed for what it is. So he de-glamorizes it, is what you're saying. Although the, I watching the preview, it looks fairly glamorous. Still. I mean, this is the problem I found is that it's incredibly stylish and glamorous. And, you know, this is his critique of how women were objectified and used. And yet he's using genre tropes that objectifies and use women. I mean, you know, Anya Taylor-Joy is gorgeous. She is dropped dead sexy, and he knows how to shoot her in a way that just perpetuates that and does not do much to develop her character. She is slightly sympathetic, you know, somewhat of her dreams and desires, but she does not feel like anything but the kind of baby doll that she is looked at and objectified, to, you know, by the world around her. And she's not, and she's not even the star of the movie. There's a young actress named Thomasin McKenzie, I believe, a New Zealand actress whose work I, well, oh, no, she was uh, the the girl in the attic in Jojo Rabbit. That's right. Yeah, and she was in Leave No Trace. I mean, she's she's terrific. I think, um, and she has a very innocent, sweet nature about her, and she plays kind of the ingenue uh, very convincingly and with a lot of empathy. And I think he kind of leans on her to bring more to the character than there is. And I think that's the real fault of this movie is that despite getting great talent, Anya Taylor Joy again also is a great actor. He's got Matt Smith in there, and that's fantastic. You know, he's he's delicious as this kind of villainous guy. Terrence Stamp is fantastic and also kind of harks back to that 60s time. Wait, um, you, you know, or Zod Terrence Stamp? Yes, exactly. But more like Toby Dammit, Terrence Stamp, if I can evoke that like crazy 60s Fellini movie. Point being that uh, also Diana Rigg is in it and uh, Rita Tushingham, who are these actors who really made a big splash in the 60s. And so he's trying to evoke that era and also have this kind of corrective film about that time. But he's got tremendous actors who are not really given an opportunity to play really three-dimensional characters and roles. And so things feel a little flat. 
he is a stylist, so scenes go on just a little too long or maybe sometimes way too long. But that's also a right. His movies tend to be really long. So the Sparks Brothers doc, which is a really fun, flashy, stylish documentary and very fun and compelling, but is two and a half hours. I mean, I think he just doesn't have the kind of discipline that would make his movies really sing. And especially when you're doing a psychological horror type film like this that also leans on giallo tropes, these kind of Italian horror films from the 70s and has that kind of soundscape and has that kind of visual flourish with cinematography, you know, bathing scenes in red and blue. It's a lot of fun to watch until it starts to feel a little exhausting. I, you can say that about pretty much any Edgar Wright movie. Pretty much. I'm really conflicted about it. On the one hand, I, I think he's phenomenally talented. And on the other hand, I think he is somewhat undisciplined. And, and, and doesn't and probably isn't one of these guys who's like, oh, sure, edit me. Right. And these these, you know, these things only get worse as your career goes on and and you get you know, you you were able to sustain success. Uh, you start to feel like, no, I know better than everybody else. Nope, nope, nope. He is making really interesting original movies in their own way that are also movie lover movies, cinephilic delights. He's working in a tradition that has Michael Powell and Peeping Tom. And, you know, he's he's doing things that are wonderfully in the continuum of British cinema. And I appreciate that. All right. Well, Last Night in Soho, directed by Edgar Wright, is in theaters now. Uh, A lot of style, not much substance. Like we said, it is an Edgar Wright movie. See it at I wouldn't say at your own risk. It doesn't sound I mean, I, I'm, I'm still interested in seeing it. It doesn't sound horrible. And, and it is paying homage to some genres that I like. Uh, so thank you, Stephen. We'll, we will talk to you about movies, maybe about something else, but probably about movies very soon. Probably about movies. Bye. <laughs> Bye. With the release a couple of weeks ago of the James Bond movie, we saw the basically the end of the d- movie delays from the pandemic, uh, with one exception. That was uh, Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, which is sort of a, the, the indiest movie that was delayed by the pandemic. I've been seeing trailers for this thing for two years. And finally, I saw it in a theater last night. It has appeared. And now we're going to move ahead with movies from here on in. Uh, I have Sarah Stewart, our Rotten Tomatoes approved film critic here to talk with me about uh, the French Dispatch. She has a review of the movie up on the site. Hello, Sarah. Hello. So Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, it's basically, as you pointed out in your in your review, it's basically like a love letter to the old school New Yorker magazine and also French New Wave cinema. So that automatically like chops 98 percent of the population out of the realm of people who would be interested in this. But for those who are interested, it's sure it's very interesting. It, I mean, it's crammed with details. It is a, an extravaganza of homages and asides and tiny little nods to things that will appeal to, as you said, about 80 people who are going to really enjoy it. It, it is re- really delicious for uh, anyone who has ever spent any time in the world of journalism, I think, um, which, which includes you and me. It's set at a magazine called The French Dispatch which is an outpost of a Kansas-based newspaper that's set in a fictional town of Ennui sur Blase, which uh, I I think Anderson could have worked a little harder on as a title. It's in the 1960s, small town France, and his writers are covering uh, various aspects of the turbulent culture of the time uh, that's going on in and around uh, Ennui sur Blase. It portrays journalism as this sort of 
deliciously, not lazy, but lengthy uh, immersion into the, the subjects you're covering with, uh, you know, D Tilda Swinton's journalist in the second segment, which is my favorite, um, gives a uh, lengthy lecture about her story on an asylum inmate who becomes a modern art star, played by Benicio Del Toro. Yeah, I, you know, I worked for, I didn't work for The New Yorker. I never wrote for The New Yorker, um, but I did write, uh, I was a staff writer at the Chicago Reader, which was a New Yorker-like publication, especially in the era I was writing for it in Chicago in the 90s. And you uh, ne also never worked for The New Yorker, but you worked for The New York Post. So you got you got some of that, you know, reporter vibe for sure. And I, I would say that uh, the, the movie... The movie's best trick is is paying homage to those those kinds of writers. Like I particularly liked um, Jeffrey Wright's take on James Baldwin. I thought that his stuff, his personal stuff, not the story that he was involved in, which was some ridiculous crime caper involving a chef and a kidnapped boy. I, I couldn't stand that story, but like his character, I thought was very interesting. And I would have liked to have seen a movie maybe more wrapped around that, you know, and also, you know, Tilda Swinton and Francis McDormand, who are the two other main characters. Um, there is an Owen Wilson segment, the sort of a talk of the town like segment at the beginning, but he's pretty he's in and out pretty fast. Uh, they were also extremely interesting, and I found the stories that they were involved in less compelling. Although I agree with you that the uh, the art one was probably was the best of the three segments. I agree with you, though. I, I think that there are um, these really wonderful moments with all of the main characters uh, who are journalists. Right, in particular, has uh, a little speech uh, at one point about the delights of the solitary journalistic feast at a cafe late at night, which I thought was really beautiful. And then he has a, a moment at the end where he's talking about uh, being gay and in the 1960s and what that's like. And it feels sort of tossed aside um, just by Anderson's sort of relentless inability to focus on one thing, um, which is what always makes me nostalgic for his earlier work. You know, he wasn't so advanced. He wasn't so crammed with ideas and influences. And I think in a way that kind of enabled him to focus in on, on you know, one or a handful of characters and actually imbue them with some feeling. Yeah, there was that one scene. Bill Murray plays the editor in chief of the French Dispatch. And, you know, he's not in it nearly enough. I mean, why why have Bill Murray in a movie? Maybe they only had him for a couple of days. I don't know. But the character has potential to be really interesting. And he's obviously like a father figure to a lot of these these journalists. And there's this great scene where he goes to bail James Baldwin out of prison and gives him his first assignment. And I was like, that was a really good, quiet scene that like focused in on the characters and just like it didn't try too much, didn't try too hard. And I really, that was my favorite scene in the movie. And I felt like a lot of the time there was so much trickery and, and, and lists and, you know, it was, it, was, it was just too much. And I wanted more of that. I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing if you're going to have the whimsy of the fake magazine, but it went way overboard, I thought. It, well, it did. And and the thing that's frustrating to me is, um, you know, I've, what I've seen, one thing I've seen and heard uh, about this movie is it, it rewards second and third viewings because there's just too much to catch seeing at one time, which I think uh, it feels sort of condescending uh, among many things that I sort of felt were condescending about this movie to, to the average moviegoer. You know, I, I, I think that it's important for people to sort of be able to enjoy a movie upon first viewing, especially considering how much money we often spend on, on going to the movies or even renting them in our homes. And I think it's sort of a shame to pack this movie so full that people may feel a little uh, uh, walled off just via not knowing all of the references. And that's a group I, I firmly include myself in.
Yeah, I mean, I caught some of the references, but I was like, I was very busy trying to catch the references. Um, you know, and, and when, when you say a second or third viewing of a movie, you know, you kind of have to like want to see a movie two or three times in order to do that. Like, you know, when I think of movies that you see two or three times, people see a lot of, I think of movies like, you know, Gladiator or Avengers Endgame or like movies that are actually kind of like dumb but fun to watch you know whereas i i can't imagine ever watching the french dispatch again i mean it's like so i can like you know get that janet flanner reference right i mean it's not worth it i'll just if i really want an aj liebling reference i'll just read one of the six aj liebling books i've got on my shelf you know <laughs> yes maybe the best you can hope for is just to see it once pick out a few things that you really enjoy and uh, and and go with that because i it think is- there's certainly i mean there's something here for everyone the tonally, these these segments are kind of all over the place. And I mean, you've got everybody has got to have at least one favorite actor in this cast. It's it's an immense cast. Yeah, I'm trying and to think. We really should talk about Timothy Chalamet just for a second. Yeah, he's in it. I mean, and he like, you know, boy, he he really dominates the screen when he's on it. And I you know and it's like and he, and Timothy Chalamet is one of these actors at this point who like people are strongly divided on him. I agree. And, and as I said in my review, I, I, I adore him, but I also think he's very much in danger of becoming overexposed. I mean, it just feels like he's in absolutely everything. It feels like you're just going to see him when you leave your house. He's going to show up and do a play for you. I, I feel like he's everywhere, but, um, but he's good. He's, and he's very photogenic. And I think Wes Anderson's camera really loves him. You yeah. Know, the cigarette and the big hair. And, and also I think it's very sweet to, to pair him with Francis McDormand. That is a, uh, an on-screen pairing that I never thought I would see. And I, I quite enjoyed it. I have to say like, you know, I find Timothy Chalamet fairly annoying. Um, but there were some moments, like there's a scene where he's in bed, Francis McDormand plays a journalist and he's like a leader of a dumb French revolutionary student revolutionary group. There's a moment where they're in bed together and he had a couple of like kind of subtle touches to his performance. And I was like, Hmm, all right, that's acting. Yeah. Yeah. You, know? you definitely like, do feel that it's acting. I do feel that, but he's so young. It's hard not to be surprised when he pulls off really good acting. Yeah, no, I, that's what I'm saying is, you know, I mean, you know, obviously, like, yeah, like you said, if everyone's going to have a favorite actor in this. I mean, you know, it's like Elizabeth Moss, like, has, is in like three scenes, you know, playing some kind of stuck up copy editor. You know, Jason Schwartzman is barely in it, you know, but he's sitting there, you know, it's like it's I, I just this is the most New Yorkery movie you're ever going to see. Right. It is. It's, and again, I, I feel like that is for a very small audience increasingly small we're not even talking about like fun like fashion world tina brown new yorker we're talking like bob gottlieb's new yorker where like every article is you know sixty thousand words. <laughs> to go back to fashion for a minute i will say going back to the tilda swinton character uh she plays an art critic named jkl berenson i think and she's giving a lecture in which she's narrating this piece that she did on an artist and, and what she's wearing is just this fabulous i think you know anderson um you know, doesn't doesn't do fashion too heavily, but this is just this fantastic orange gown and this huge orange hairdo and cocktail, and she's just she's this sort of vision of '60s fabulousness, and I, and I really enjoyed that. I mean, Tilda Swinton can do absolutely anything. She's such a chameleon, and I found this really uh, an enjoyable kind of new twist for her. Well, for those of us who are now grinding away in our home offices, you know, it does present a sort of romantic view of journalism that is never going to really return. I mean, do you remember this, Neil? Do you remember the expense accounts? Oh, yes. The the deadlines that stretched on and on, you know, the encouragement to to dive deeper into a story. Can you imagine? The lunches. Oh, the lunches. Endless lunches, my God. (laughs) Boozy lunches. 
Yeah, so many. And now I just, I mean, I could have a boozy lunch right now if I wanted to. <laughs> you could, I guess we but all it would be It would be a lonely boozy lunch watching, um, you know, reruns of America's Test Kitchen on Pluto TV by myself. <laughs> Our pandemic my- boozy lunches have taken a definitely a more melancholy turn. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, The French Dispatch is in theaters now. Your mileage may vary. Sarah Stewart, thanks for stopping in. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. J'avais dessiné Sur le sable Son doux visage All right, thanks to Sarah Stewart for talking with me about The French Dispatch, the new movie from Wes Anderson, an homage to the old-school New Yorker. I don't know how many of those old-school New Yorker writers would have uh, liked this movie. You know, they were more into boxing and gambling and urban lowlife, and this movie's a little, little, maybe a little twee for them, but... Your mileage may vary, and you may like it. We're closing this week with uh, the song Aline by Christophe, which is featured in the movie. Actually, the, the, the version of the movie is by Jarvis Cocker, the contemporary pop singer. I kind of like this version better. It's old-school French. Thanks also to Stephen Garrett for talking about Last Night in Soho and to Ted McClellan for dropping in to talk about the new Jonathan Franzen novel. Crossroads. I'm Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. As they say in Ennui sur Blasé, à tout à l'heure, we'll talk to you soon.